We've been in Mark 13 for three Sundays thus far, and in this fourth Sunday we cover only a few verses. Just as a quick preface and reminder, I'm interpreting this text within the context of Mark 13's opening and closing verses, which I believe gives us a time frame for these verses, though many pastors and authors argue for a future from us fulfillment. I believe that the Bible demands from us a fulfillment future for Jesus and his hearers, but merely within a generation of Jesus delivering this prophecy. I bring this up repetitively, not because I'm dogmatic about my interpretation per se, but I'm dogmatic about the inerrancy of Scripture and its trustworthiness. I want you to trust Jesus at his plain word. In Mark 13, verse 30, when he says, Truly, emphatically, I'm not lying, hear me out plainly, says Jesus, I say to you, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, so tell us, Mark 13, verse 3, that this generation, a contemporary generation of Jesus, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, will not pass away, will not die until all these things, everything he mentions in this chapter, takes place. That's a statement that I, I cannot ignore. And if I want to be faithful to Scripture, I probably should not twist. Some pastors and Christians do twist it because uh, they think that it has to be a future fulfillment because of the language uh, that this passage uses. I hope that our studies thus far and will continue to be a sigh of relief for you that, lo and behold, you can trust Jesus at his word, and as we have seen throughout the time frame that Jesus is talking about, fulfillments of his word. More about trusting Jesus next week when we hopefully come to the end of our study in Mark 13. But as for this week, I want to remind you of the focal point of Jesus' prophecy in this chapter. As Mark set it up for us plainly, uh, Mark 13, verses 1 through 4, opens up with Jesus and his disciples walking out of the temple. Uh, the temple has been the primary setting since Mark, really Mark 11. Jesus has had not anything good to say about the temple or its leadership. Uh, he says that instead of it being a quote, Mark 11:17, he calls it a, he says that it should be a house of prayer for all nations, but he says to the temple leadership that they've made it into a den of robbers. And they come out of this den of robbers, and one of the disciples kind of gives it kudos. He says, ooh, it's pretty. And Jesus says, yeah, it's going to be destroyed. And having a little bit of tact, the disciples and Jesus move away from the very stair steps of the temple. They go up to the Mount of Olives, where they get a plain view of the temple. Um, while being out of earshot, they ask Jesus, when will these things be? What things? The things that Jesus was referring to. Namely, the fall of the temple. So thus far as we have studied, Jesus has been giving the disciples signs to look for nearing the destruction of the temple. But what we have seen here, though, as we come to our text today, is really kind of a reason for its destruction. So we have just four verses today. Please follow with me and please stand with me in honor of reading the Lord's Word. Mark chapter 13, verses 24 through 27. It says this, But in those days after that tribulation, 
The sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before a weighty thing any time we come before it. Your word, your scripture. Father, I thank you for your scripture. I thank you that you've presented it to us and that you've inspired the writing of it through your Holy Spirit. And Father, we trust your spirit to lead us and guide us now as we listen to your word. Father, would you use your word continually to speak to us? May we learn more about you through this word, and may your Holy Spirit apply it to our hearts in a way that is very applicable and practical. We trust that you can do that. Father, would you bless the preaching of your word? Would you bless the hearing of your word? Would you get me out of the way and say what it is that you wish to say to us? We ask and we pray these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. I had an entire class, or at least an entire syllabus objective in one of my classes at Bible College, concerned with one question. That question is, was Jesus a reformer or a revolutionary or both? Uh, did he come to merely reform Judaism? Are we a continuation of Jews? Or did he come to revolutionize Judaism and truly uh, do what many historians Christian or not, tell us, did Jesus break away from Judaism to, to found his own religion? What did Jesus think he was doing? Did he do both? Did he reform the Jewish faith and revolutionize the people of God on making an entire new people of God? Splits in Judaism were nothing new for the Jewish people. At the time of Jesus, there were Pharisees, kind of a holiness movement, very law-abiding. There were zealots, uh, kind of the fringe element, very woodlandy. <laughs> These were the guys with guns and ready to tackle the authorities. There were Sadducees, high-ranking officials, loaded with money. They read the Bible. They just didn't believe anything supernatural about it. They kind of liked it for its rules. Uh, but going back further into Jewish history, there were also Samaritans. Now, this was a much bigger split than just denominations, a bit bigger divide, a few more nuances of walls between Jews and Samaritans than just, say, Jewish Pharisees and Jewish Sadducees. See, Sadducees and Pharisees can get together and talk, but Samaritans and Jews, they had rules about not talking with each other. Now, Samaritans occupied a geographical space on the map, and the book of John tells us that Jews would rather walk around that geographical location than go through it. You see, they, they would rather get to Lewiston uh, via Grangeville from Cameo than take Highway 12, if you catch my drift. John also tells us about Samaria, uh, one of the most notable stories about Jesus and a Samaritan, a Samaritan woman. And John introduces this story. Here's Jesus single rabbi male, and here's a Samaritan woman, loose morally, or we're led to believe, 
at the well in the heat of the day so as to ignore the other women who gather in the cool of the morning. And she's not supposed to talk with, uh, with guys. She's not supposed to talk with Jews and just her luck. Here's a Jewish single guy at the well. What happens? Well, you know the story. It was bound to happen. See, even though their theological disagreements go back generations before them, this gal just cannot help uh, but take a little swipe at Jesus, right? Now, this is the classical free will guy saying to the predestination Calvinist guy, oh, once saved, always saved, huh? So, so does that mean you can go and do whatever you want and sleep around and gamble and all the like and be saved? This gal makes that kind of swipe. She says, you say you're a prophet, Jesus, but you got the wrong mountain. Uh, our forefathers tell us to worship on this mountain, yet you Jews, it's all about Jerusalem. You, you got the wrong mountain, Jesus, right? We read King James, and you read the, the NIV, the North Idaho Version Bible. R wrong Bible, Jesus, right? That, that's kind of what's happening. Jesus doesn't take that bait. Jesus does not tell her, Jerusalem's right, you're wrong. He really doesn't go there. But listen to what Jesus says. Jesus says to her, John chapter 4, verses 21 through 23, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Do you hear what Jesus is saying there? Now, he does affirm, I should probably take back what I said, he does affirm salvation is from the Jews, right? You won't find salvation on your mountain. So he does kind of correct her, if you will. But Jesus finds common ground. Jesus can and does reach into the heart of any religious person. And sometimes Jesus even shows up at Christian churches. See, Jesus, Jesus finds common ground and he says, the hour is coming where the mountain does not matter because it's not about the mountain. It's about the Father and it's about the Spirit and truth. I think we're going to find what Jesus means as we study today. We're going to trek through a forest, though, to get to the answer of this text. So remember what I say here, but, but let's enter into this forest. Let's go to our text in Mark 13. We start in verse 24 and 25, which says, But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. I've been making the case that Jesus, and Mark is recording Jesus and they're arguing concerning the time span of one generation because that is simply what Jesus says in Mark 13, 30, that he says a lot of things will be happening leading up to the fall of the temple. We've gone through several images that, that usually you and I are more familiar in respect to a future tense fulfillment because we're used to pastors getting out time charts and authors making tons of money on coming up with future ideas on who the Antichrist is. When all that is necessary is a thorough reading of your New Testament and a few outside sources, whether it be historians or church fathers, to show us that these images are fulfilled, and most important, agrees and fits together with Jesus' words in Mark 13, verse 30. Excuse me. 
And so we come to this cataclysmic imagery. I told you the last time together that we were in Mark 13, that Jesus is using prophetic language. Now, I have, a, I have a worry that whenever I say that, prophetic language, that a snarky little critic shows up in your mind and says, that's just an excuse that people like Kevin use to get away from a literal interpretation. Kevin, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will literally fall from heaven, and there will be powers in heaven shaken. Kevin, just take it as it is. And if that's you, can you let's just put our thinking caps on with me. And just head over to Mark 13. And I want to do a little Bible school as into what prophetic imagery is and how we interpret them in other parts of the Bible. So head over to Isaiah 13 with me. God is prophesying through Isaiah a judgment against Babylon. If you, if you know your Old Testament history, Babylon comes in and takes Jerusalem and Judea captive. And Jews are sent into exile. But Babylon, as wicked as it is, is then going to be conquered by Persia. And Isaiah is prophesying about this, and he says this in Isaiah 13. I really, really need your thinking caps on. I know it's not easy on the ears all the time to hear Old Testament prophecies, so just bear with me. We're going to read Isaiah verses 1 through 13. Let's start with the first three verses. It says, The oracle concerning Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amos saw, on a bare hill, raise a signal, cry aloud to them, wave the hand for them to enter, the gates of the nobles. I myself have commanded my consecrated ones and have summoned my mighty men to execute my anger, my proudly exulting ones. Right? So, so God is saying, I got some people here to do my bidding, to execute my wrath against Babylon. No different from when God, what God said to Habakkuk. Many of you were here a few years ago when we went through the book of Habakkuk, when Babylon was coming in the first place uh, to do God's bidding in wrath over Israel. But God continues about the people that he's got ready to do his bidding against Babylon, and he says, The sound of a tumult is on the mountains, as of a great multitude. The sound of an uproar of kingdoms, of nations gathering together. The Lord of hosts is mustering a host for battle. They come from a distant land from the end of the heavens, the Lord and the weapons of his indignation to destroy the whole land. Did you hear that imagery there? They come from the end of the heavens. Do they literally come from the end of the heavens? No, they're coming from Persia. And they're coming to destroy the whole land. No, they're coming to destroy Israel. Verse 6. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. What day is near? The day of the Lord, and it's near, it's close, and we know now that it has passed. It's past the day that this prophecy was fulfilled, namely when Persia conquered Babylon. It continues, as destruction from the Almighty, it will come. God is saying that when Persia came, and though Persia thought that it was victorious, and though Persia in their own minds was accomplishing the will of the, their military and their national leaders, and though Babylon felt defeated and conquered by Persia, God says through Isaiah, this is my destruction over them. God used Persia for his purposes, and Persia's success was God's success. Do you hear that? Well, what will happen during this destruction? Uh, verse 7 and 8. 
Therefore, all hands will be feeble, and every human heart will melt. They will be dismayed. Pangs and agony will seize them. They will be in anguish like a woman in labor. They will look aghast at one another. Their faces will be aflame. Don't know about you, but that sounds kind of poetic to me, but we get the general picture. All hands will be feeble. So was there a hand check to see if that's what happened? Every human heart will melt. Does that mean that the Babylonians died of melted hearts? All their faces were aflame. Were all their faces on fire? No, we, we understand that as poetic imagery. Verse 9. Behold, the day of the Lord comes. There's that day of the Lord again, and it's coming. How is it coming? Cruel. With wrath and fierce anger to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. That to me sounds kind of final. Sounds kind of like a, a wiping the land clean. Was Babylon desolate? Did the Persians show up and find no one? Listen to this. Very interesting. Maybe it sounds very familiar to you. Isaiah 13 verse 10 on this judgment against um, Babylon, verse 10 says, For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising, and the moon will not shed its light. Sounds kind of cosmic. What does God mean here? Because we look back at the day when Persia took over Babylon. And we think about the writing on the wall incident in Daniel 5, the very night where King Belshazzar was having a little drinking party with the temple elements from Jerusalem and King Darius and the Persians entered. But, but Daniel doesn't tell us in that historical account about all, this, all these cosmic and cataclysmic signs. We continue, though, about this judgment against Babylon. Verse 11, I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless I will make the people more rare than fine gold and mankind than the gold of Ophir. Verse 13. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken out of its place as the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the day of his fierce anger. What's the point? The point is that judgment came to pass and that God is using imagery to describe what is taking place. And again, for God... When Persia, one empire, took over Babylon, another empire, for God, it was judgment on the sin of Babylon. For humanity, though, it was a world-changing event, one empire to another. For God, it was his decree, he did it. But why all this earth-shaking, star-stopping, sun-going-dark language? Because though it is an event in history that God brought to pass, it was nevertheless a changing of world landscape in an abstract sense, right? The, the power structures of the world are being realigned. Let me put it to you this way. When I say the day that the Berlin well, Wall fell, you think primarily of an end to an era of communism in a certain place. But someone, thousands of years from now, outside of and unrelated to American culture and outside of our terms and words, will they think likely of, well, the day when they took those sledgehammers to the concrete walls of Berlin, what's so big about that? Yes, we talk about that incident, 
But for the, for the mind, the contemporary mind, 1989 Berlin, it was more than just a physical act. Does that make sense? Do you understand the difference between the fall of the Berlin Wall, a concrete falling wall over in Berlin, and then the fall of the Berlin Wall and into an era of communism in history in Berlin? Why do I bring all of this up? I want you to hear the same language as here in Isaiah 13, as well as lots of verses that I've put it on your outline with similar texts that sounds almost exactly the same as what Jesus says here in Mark 13. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Does that not just sound like what we read in Isaiah? And I think that this is intentional. Because note the double language of judgment that Jesus is using here in prophesying what I consider to be 70 AD. Jesus is saying, I think in prophetic language, a big realignment here. The fall of one era, namely Second Temple Judaism, a block of history in God's people where they came to the temple, worshipped at the temple, did sacrifices at the temple, did pilgrimages to the temple. The God-centered life was a temple-centered life, and God is saying that era is being dealt a decisive blow. Jesus is saying, I'm the center of life, not the temple. I come here and I died for your sins and I call God's people away from the temple, not to it. And so when 70 AD happens, the fall of Second Temple Judaism and the rise of God's outward reach into the world. We'll talk about that in a few minutes. But that's the first judgment. The second judgment I want you to see is the irony and the statement of the fact that likely Jesus' hearers would hear in their minds, as Jesus is saying these things, they would go to Isaiah 13, where Isaiah uses very similar language to prophesy judgment against Babylon, but this time it's different. See, Jesus' judgment here in Mark 13, it's not against Babylon, but do you understand the tragic irony that it's against Jerusalem? Again, I really want you to see this, Isaiah 13, 9 through 10, against Babylon. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel with fury and wrath and burning anger, to make the land a desolation. He will exterminate its sinners from it. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not flash forth their light, and the sun will be darkened when it rises. The moon will not shed its light. Verse 13, therefore I will make the heavens tremble. The earth will be shaken out of its place. And the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the day of his fierce anger. Compare that with images prevalent in Mark 13, verse 14. When you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand and let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Verses 24 and 25. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. So the irony... And the tragedy is that Babylon has become Jerusalem. Friends, that's similar for us to hear America is Rome. And we're not talking about the prestige of Rome, but the moral decay and the sinfulness and the waning of a huge empire going into filth and extinction. See, Babylon was Israel's enemy. 
Though it is a big deal, Israel was happy to see Babylon go, even if it meant Israel had new conquerors, Persia. At least Persia released the Jews to go back to Jerusalem. I believe Jesus is giving Jerusalem double judgment in describing the end of the era, but also comparing it prophetically with Babylon. Verse 26. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. I know this sounds future because how we're wired. Can I drop a mind bomb for you real quick to get you off the kick that this must be God's second coming? I want you to listen to a very curious phrase of what Jesus says to his disciples. Matthew chapter 10 verse 23 He's talking to his disciples when he says, When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly, I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. You could do two, maybe three things with that verse. A, you can take that verse at face value and say, Okay, the Son of Man must have come in some way. Before Jesus' disciples were done in Israel. B, you can say, Jesus made a slight boo-boo there. He obviously didn't come in the way I expect him to come. And thus he lied and is a false prophet. And we got bigger problems than just Jesus uh, giving a boo-boo then. Option C, you can refuse to take it at face value, but simultaneously hold a contradictory view that Jesus must be referring to his second coming there and ignore that verse in the guise of saying, I'm appealing to the mystery of God here because there's a reality that I can't pinpoint, but it will be revealed to me. In fact, I remember sitting in uh, Sunday school at the Valley View Nazarene Church don't remember who my teacher was, and it's not really a judgment on them, but I remember reading that verse, and I say to them, I say, well, what do we do with this verse? And that's exactly what they say. Well, there's mysteries about God's Bible that we just don't really understand, and maybe we're not supposed to. And I said, hmm, that helped. I'm saying that you can go with option A, and you can take it at plain value. Because to go with option A... It does not do damage to the scripture. To say that this verse was fulfilled, as Jesus said, doesn't do damage to the scripture. It might do damage to a desired interpretation that you have of scripture, and I would encourage you to submit to scripture and surrender your desired interpretation. We go back to Mark 13, 26, and we see firstly that Jesus in his words here Reveals the intent of his message. He says the son of man is coming in clouds. Which is a picture straight from Daniel chapter 7 verses 13 through 14. You can look that up later. And so we might ask. What does Jesus mean by that? He's coming on the clouds. The son of man is coming in clouds. And so Jesus continues. With great power and glory. That's what that means. The Old Testament tells us that. God often came in power and glory invisible through clouds. When God promises to give manna to the Israelites in Exodus 16, particularly verse 10, he appears in a cloud. Uh, we see the cloud covering Mount Sinai in places like Exodus 19, verse 9, and Exodus 24, 15 through 16. 
We see Moses would talk to God face to face in places like Exodus 33 verse 9, which says, When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. We see that to continue to happen through the books of Leviticus and Numbers. Most recently, though, in the book of Mark, we saw in Mark chapter 9, Jesus, Peter, James, and John, they go up a hill. And Jesus meets with Elijah and Moses and is transfigured. Now Mark 9.3 says, And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. So what happens? Mark 9.7 says, And the cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. My point. God shows up. God comes near. God seems to reveal himself and reveal his power and reveal his glory consistently through a cloud. And all the instances I just mentioned to you was God's coming on clouds, but it was not a final coming. It was not a coming, picking up and going. So if we take God's coming on the clouds here in Mark 13, and, and actually I want to take a quick aside real quick. I want to point, I want to point something out to you. I just gave you a bunch of references with God coming on the clouds. What does Jesus say, though? Jesus uses a name he uses for himself often in Mark, and he calls himself the Son of Man, and he says, and they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Jesus says, it is the Son of Man on the clouds. This is just a subtle but certain reference to Jesus establishing Deity, his being God, because usually it's God that comes on clouds. Jesus is saying the Son of Man is coming. So did God, did Jesus, did the Son of Man come on the clouds with a 70 A.D. Jewish war, follow the temple fulfillment, as Mark 13, 1 through 4, this is about the fall of the temple, and Mark 13, 30, this is this generation, as they both indicate, did Jesus come on the clouds? As we've been going through Mark 13 slowly, so as to point out to you historical fulfillments, I do this to present eschatology that does not get much airtime, but I also do this to point out again that, that we, not, we don't need to be prophets to figure out this text. I've been pulling from a Roman contemporary historian like Tacitus, and I've also been pulling from a Jewish historian named Josephus. I want you to get to know Josephus. I want to give you a quick introduction to, to who this guy is. He was a Jewish commander in the Jewish war that we've been talking about, which lasted anywhere from about 66 to 73 A.D. Josephus was not a Christian, but Josephus was post-Jesus has come, and, and Josephus didn't believe him as the Messiah Jewish. That's who he is. His city in northern Israel gets captured. He's taken captive. Uh, some say that he was he betrayed, he became a traitor, that he switched sides. Uh, Josephus, like Jeremiah before him, was watching Jerusalem. And I think Josephus did not want to watch his world burn. He saw what, that the Romans were going to win. So, so Jephus, Josephus, he becomes a translator for the Romans. He's a liaison between the Romans and the Jews. And he tries to encourage the Jews to surrender before it's too late. 
to surrender before Jerusalem burns, before the wall, excuse me, the temple falls. But Jesus is a true prophet. Um, and Jerusalem, the Jews in Jerusalem were stubborn and unyielding. And Jerusalem burns and the temple burns. So Christians go to Josephus often to get a snapshot of first century Christianity. And I would say non-Christians go to Josephus anyways because he is a good record of history. And I want to say that everything about Josephus' work suggests that it's an as accurate and as unbiased as can be expected. So I'm not saying that it's completely un unbiased, but it's unbiased as can be expected from a person who is so personally involved in that war. So were his works divinely inspired and on par with the Bible? Of course not. But remember two weeks ago, we looked through a text that says, if you follow me, the world will hate you. And so what you and I did is we tap into our experiences as a Christian and we say, that's true. So we look at prophecy and Mark 13, which again, verses 1 through 4 and verse 30, plainly state is about the fall of the temple and before the contemporary generation passes. And we compare it with history that we have from that time and we say, yep, that matches up. Case in point, I want to take you to arguably the most fascinating passage in Josephus' writings about that war in 70 A.D. Josephus is a true historical skeptic at heart, it seems. As, as he opens up this record with a little reluctance on his part. Listen to what he says. He says, On the one and twentieth day of the month of Artemisius, a certain prodigious and incredible phenomenon appeared. I suppose the account of it would seem to be a fable were it not related by those who saw it, and were not the events that followed it of so considerable a nature as to deserve such signals. So he gives a time and a day, and he says something unnatural and phenomenal appeared, so much so that if I were to relate it, some might think it untrue. However, many eyewitnesses attest to it, and Josephus says, I would not speak of it only except for what befell the city after its happenings. It seems only fair to share for what it's worth. Do you hear that? And so then, this is what Josephus says. He says, for before sunsetting, Chariots and troops of soldiers in their armor were seen running about among the clouds and surrounding the cities. Do you see why Josephus introduced that section as he did? He doesn't call it a prodigious and phenomenal event for no reason. He worries that some readers might consider it untrue, but he can't escape talking about it because it was witnessed by many. Now, some of you say, well, that just sounds miraculous. I don't know if I can believe that. And I would argue that's, by definition, what a miracle is. It doesn't happen every, time, every day. It reminds me of an account, though, in the Old Testament. 2 Kings chapter 6. The, the Syrian army is gathering around Elisha and his servant. And the servant is scared. So read with me 2 Kings 6, verses 14 through 17. It says, so he, that is the king of Syria, sent there where Elisha is, horses and chariots and a great army. And they came by night and surrounded the city. When the servant of the man of God, so when Elisha's servant, rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. 
And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? Elisha said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and the chariots of fire all around Elisha. Friends, we have over the skies in Jerusalem, 70 A.D., told to us by, yes, a non-Christian witness, chariots and troops in their armor running among the crowds, excuse me, clouds, and surrounding the cities. Josephus continues, Moreover, at that feast which we call Pentecost, as the priests were going by night into the inner court of the temple, as their custom was, to perform their sacred ministrations, they said that in the first place they felt a quaking and heard a great noise, and after that they heard a sound as of a great multitude saying, Let us remove hence. The priest going into the temple, earthquake happens, and a multitude of disembodied voices, let us remove hence. In other words, get out fast. To me, that sounds like signs in the sky, shaking in the heavens, the Son of Man coming on clouds. What is happening here? Why is Jesus speaking in prophetic language? Why is this a, a, why is this a realignment of the spiritual landscape of first century A.D. Because in a few days from Jesus prophesying this, roughly 33 A.D., Jesus is going to go to the cross. Jesus is going to take the place of the temple. Friends, the, the, the people of God meet in the temple of God, and the temple of God is not the place that Jesus and his four disciples are looking out from the Mount of Olives. No, the temple of God is Jesus himself. Jesus is the house of prayer for all nations. Jesus is where the nations come to find eternal life. Jesus is the centrality of God's people. Jesus is where the final sacrifice takes place. We take pilgrimages to and we lodge at Jesus, not the temple. Friends, we're going to peek ahead and fast forward a few chapters in Mark. Because Jesus here in Mark 13 is talking about the fall of one temple. And in the gospel accounts, we are told that Jesus talks about another temple that falls down. And as Jesus hangs on the cross, Jesus hears from a mocker about that statement. We look in Mark 15, verse 29 and 30, which says, And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. Jesus did say that should one knock down this temple, he would restore it in three days. Jesus was being as literal as possible. Because Jesus is the temple of God. Jesus is our temple. There's a cosmic shift in the people of God who would worship in spirit and truth. They do it at the temple of God, Jesus Christ. The man who fell like the temple would fall. And unlike the temple, Jesus rises again in three days. Why does the temple not rise again? We see that in our final verse today. Verse 27 of Mark 13 says, And then he, I'm assuming that's the same he as the Son of Man coming on the clouds, will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth, 
to the ends of heaven. Circle that word angels. Translators of the Bible are often put in hard predicaments. Because we have English words that can mean different things depending on context. And sometimes both meanings can work for one context. So as it is in Hebrew. If I told you that I'm checking out a book at the library, but you did not observe the actual action there, you might quickly assume that I took the book to the desk, I did the actual exchange, I signed my name, they scanned the book, and I was told to bring it back in 30 days, and, and it's already in my car and riding with me on the way back home. Just as possible, though, Though you may not have thought about it this way, I could still be at the library with the book open in my hands. Why? Because I'm checking it out. You understand that two different meanings and one word, or in this case one phrase, both meanings applicable within that context. This word angels is angelos, and it means literally a delegate or a messenger. And it's used in the Bible interchangeably between human messengers and then the supernatural angelic image you probably have in your mind. Our first quickly understanding of angels. So many Bible translations put in the word angels here, as in he will send out angels to gather the elect. However, this exact same word is used in Mark chapter 1 verse 2, referring to, I will send my messenger before your face. And Mark sees this messenger in Mark 1, 2, same word as angel, but he sees it as John the Baptist, who is a human being and who is a messenger of God. And so we come here and we see translators then have translated this same word because of its context into the word angels. I looked through a plethora of translations and saw only three uh, three much less known translations translating this word as messengers. One of those translations being Young's literal translation. Like I said, though, this is a predicament for translators because they look at the context and they have to make a decision. I'm going to go against the majority of translators, which again is okay because, as I said, the original Greek is used interchangeably. Not because I doubt the word angels but because I doubt the image it conjures up when we say angels. And I, again, I note that the Bible itself even refers to the exact same word as human messengers, namely in Mark 1-2, as I just said. Because here's what I believe that Jesus is saying here. Jesus is saying that after the tribulation, after the temple falls and the armies come and Jerusalem falls and the Son of Man will send out his messengers, which would be his disciples, his followers, and they're going to gather to collect, to assemble the elect, the believers, those who accept God from the entire planet. Note in this verse that Jesus neither says it will be a job done in a few minutes, a job done suddenly or instantaneously, nor does Jesus put any time frame on the gathering of the believers from the world, only that it will happen after the temple falls, after the Son of Man comes on the clouds. This gives us insight to at least two reasons the destruction of the temple in 70 AD is happening. First and foremost, the destruction is judgment to the temple. It's nothing new in the context of Mark. Since Mark 11.11, 11, Jesus' energies, teachings, and judgments have been focused on the temple. 
He said that the temple has failed in reaching the nations. He says that it's bankrupt with greed and self-centeredness. It's fruitless. He says their leaders are wicked, that the proverbial vineyard is being taken from them. He says that they have no authority. He says that they don't do their scripture exegeting right because the Messiah is before their eyes and they are missing him. So it is a logical continuation of Mark's book thus far to see this entire chapter as what will lead up to the temple's fall. The second purpose, or or perhaps better put, uh, a product of this judgment, is what it does for the people of God. That's what Jesus says here, and that is it compels his people to be outward focused. Jesus pushes his messengers outward. Jerusalem is done. It's not the center of God. It's not the city of God anymore. The city of God is Jesus and his people. The temple of God is Jesus and his church. Jesus says to the woman at the well, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Jesus is saying, Samaria, Judea, Jerusalem, Mecca, Rome, Idaho, New York, South America, Europe, it does not matter. People will come to the true temple, to me, Jesus, to worship the Father. They won't come to Jerusalem. They won't come to that temple. That temple is being destroyed. Paul calls the Christian body in all of his, many of his writings, places like Ephesians 2.1, the temple of the Lord. Excuse me, Ephesians 2.21. And so Jesus pushes his messengers. Jerusalem's going to be wiped out. His messengers need to get out. They need to be outward focused. They need to gather the elect from the ends of the world. Friends, we're on one of those ends of the world right now. And something tells me that there are still elect to be gathered. There are people who, when presented the gospel, will accept the gospel. And I wonder, are they right next door to you, to me? God pushed his messengers outward under the fall of Jerusalem. And I believe God pushed his messengers outward during a fire in Woodland. But friends, the mission still remains. Are you inward focused or outward focused? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for your Son, Jesus, our temple. Father, we're grateful that you have given us the gospel. We're grateful to be serving you. We're grateful to be part of your family. We're grateful to be messengers. And I just pray that you would use these words for us daily this coming week. That it would be applicable in our lives that we would do what you call us to do. That we would be outward focused, inviting all people to the temple to Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, Christ and King. Amen.